0: afternoon welcome to my April edition of the construction webinar series live here from Lois Law Firm where we were having some technical difficulties today it happens once in a while for those of you joining me for the very first time my name is Tashir Sewell. I am a partner here at Lois Law Firm where I uh, practice the defense of um, workers compensation claims that arise out of construction accidents. That's all I do here. I oversee a team of attorneys and paralegals who handle only construction-related uh, workers' compensation claims. Um, thank you for joining me. If you've been following me along for the past two years or so, thank you for continuing to join me. Every month I talk about a different topic that's related to um, uh, construction claims. I try to focus on issues we're seeing. Uh, the key uh, factors that come into play in defending these claims, and this month I'm talking about the importance of understanding wrap-up policies, OSIPs and CSIPs, why they're so important. We'll talk about the anatomy, the benefits, coverage issues. Um, That's probably one of my major focus here, the, the coverage issues that we see, because the board or adversaries the judges do not understand how these wrap-up programs work and they think that because an accident occurs on a particular job site that the wrap-up policy would cover it. Um, we'll also talk about some unique defen- defenses and issues, uh, the administration of the wrap-up program, and some important documents we should always be talking about when we're uh, defending these coverage issues that involve the CSEPs and the OSEPs. All right. Just a reminder, this is a live webinar, Um, at the end you can ask questions, just type them into the box, it looks like this. Another reminder is, um, we do have a 2022 updated version of my Construction Defense Handbook, we have um, a PDF copy that's searchable. If you'd like to get a copy or a hard copy, please let me know, send me an email, give me a call, and I'll be sure to get you the updated version. All right, so let's talk about wrap-up policies. Generally, when we're talking about the wrap-up policies, we are, um, at least for me, I'll be saying OSIP, but I'm, I'm, I'm gonna talk about wrap-ups in general. I tend to focus on OSIPs because most of the clients I work with are OSIP clients, um, and they're, they're the most popular type of a wrap-up policy. So the definition of a RAPO policy, we're talking about one particular policy uh, covering workers' compensation, general liability, employer's liability, generally all of those together. It's only for enrolled contractors, and it's site-specific. It's only for a particular uh, job site for contractors that are actually approved to be on the program, aka the OSIP are those that are owner-controlled, meaning the, um, the, the, the owner of the project, the entity or the organization that is going to engage in the construction. They're the one that's controlling the wrap-up program, or the contractor-controlled program where a general contractor is hired to oversee and execute the program, and they're the ones that are taking out the insurance policy. It's different from an operational policy, which is the proper term, by the way. In court, the adversaries and the judges are always referring to it as the the general policy, but the proper terminology for it is the operational policy. And this is because in and of itself, it means that a a company or entity needs it to operate pursuant to the laws of New York State. The benefits of a RABO. Let's talk a little bit about why, why it's so important to have a wrap-up policy and why they're becoming so much more popular and prevalent in the construction industry these days, and also in the courtroom. Now, it reduces, um, reduces insurance costs. That is definitely a, a bonus to having a wrap-up program. Um, the reduction in litigation costs also its elimination of cross litigation for example, efforts that are being uh, set forth in the workers' compensation claim, for example. Uh, some of that can be used in the general liability claim uh, or vice, for, uh, vice versa in order to avoid duplication of litigation um, efforts. It also prevents gaps in coverage. That is because the one wrapper program is going to ensure that there is continuous coverage from the beginning to the end of the project as opposed to relying on the individual contractors and subcontractors to provide their own insurance you run the risk of having gaps and that just reduces exposure overall. Efficient claims handling that's because um, you're going to have your OSIP or your CSIP administrator, right? Uh, they're going to assign different people that are going to have different roles. And everyone's going to be communicating with each other because that's what we do with these wrap programs. And it's going to make claims, uh, it's going to allow the claims to be handled more efficiently. And finally, reduce risk through a uniform safety handling uh, program. One of the big issues we've seen on these construction job sites is uh, the issue of um, the safety program not being uh, consistent throughout the project, for the life of the project. We don't know who's in charge of it, who's not in charge of it. With a wrap-up program, all of that is set in stone. Everyone knows who's in charge of safety, what the protocols are, what the reporting um, procedures are. Who's who's uh, the medic on site who are who's the ones that are going to take complaints and generate the incident reports and so forth and That really helps to set up um, a defense of a claim from the very beginning So let's talk more about who is covered under a rapid policy So I just mentioned that there must be and the the, the contractors must be enrolled in the program this is very very important because if they're not enrolled in the program, they would not be covered by the wrap-up, as alleged by our adversary or the law judge or the court. It doesn't in itself wrap up everything that's happening on the project. Non-enrolled contractors will be on the project day in and day out, and it's different from project to project. Examples of contractors who are going to be on that project and not be enrolled those who are there under a certain number of hours, you know, every program has a minimum requirement. Maybe they're there for a day or two, brought in to do some kind of a small job that became a necessity, and they're not part of, they're not officially enrolled in the program. <clears throat> they're under a certain contract value, so maybe a contract that's under, I don't know, five thousand um, dollars. That might be low, but if it's something that's very small, very nominal, they they're not going to be part of the uh, enrolled uh, list of enrolled contractors. Um, hazardous materials vendors, for example, asbestos removal. I'm yet to see a wrap-up uh, policy that covers something like asbestos abatement. Um, just because of the nature of that activity, the risk is going to be on the contractor or the vendor who's brought in to do that. Um, Demolition is generally not um, covered in many wrap-ups also usually for that phase of the project the individual contractors are required to provide their own uh, policy and coverage. Um, Some things like um, elevators uh, are not covered generally not covered also and there's like a list of um, there's a list of different kinds of trades that are not covered and again it depends on the particular uh, wrap-up program. So many, many people make this assumption that all work and contractors are covered. And again, if you're not enrolled, you're not gonna be covered, but we should also be looking at things like the date of loss and the phase of the project. So because an accident occurred on a project that was covered by a wrap-up program, we should be looking at when the coverage started and when the coverage ended, because they, the, the accident may have happened before it actually started, the, the coverage, or it may have happened after the coverage. So it's important to get the policies and see the periods that are actually um, covered by the rapid program or whether the subcontractor's operational policy would be triggered. The phase of the project also, so for example, I just mentioned uh, demo, demo is generally not covered. Sometimes it is, depends on the program. And I've also seen like towards the end of the project, sometimes it's not covered where they're just on site doing punchless items. Um, those are not covered by the wrap up. So we need to pay attention to the date of the alleged loss and compare it to the actual um, policy period that covers work on the job site, in addition to whether they're enrolled in the projects. So when we have these coverage issues, there's a list of things I'm always looking for, and I'm always looking for clients when I set forth my legal action plan, because almost always we need at least one of these documents to show that we either have coverage or coverage um, does not include a particular contractor or a particular type of work that's being done. The certificate of coverage, this is something that's very easy to obtain, provided to your attorneys. They can file for with the board to show uh, whether there should have been coverage in the wrap-up or whether a contractor was required to provide a certificate of coverage because they were not going to be covered by the wrap-up. The policy manual, um, the wrap-up programs usually have A document that explains everything from the purpose of the project, the kind of work that's going to be carried out, who's going to be carrying out the work, uh, what the enrollment process entails. It's important that we have that policy manual. A lot of times we don't get it and we sometimes face an uphill battle in trying to contest that there should be coverage um, by the wrap-up. So this is something we should always get and keep it in our files um, along with the policy documents. Project completion documents. This is important because as I mentioned a little while ago, towards the end of a project, a lot of times the wrap-up policy no longer covers things that happen um, t- towards the end. So the policy, any, any anything that would show that the project has been completed, there was an end date, there, you know, someone signed off on the last day the contractor was there, that would be helpful to uh, contest the date of loss that does not fall within Our policy period or if there's kind of like a gray area um, and that we're not sure whether our policy actually covers it. The parameters of the project site. Now so one of the things that we've been doing um, since we've been handling these construction claims is when it comes to a wrap-up policy we are very very specific in our arguments as to the, the physical location that's covered by the policy. We're talking about uh, street corners and Avenue corners we even talk about sidewalk or not the sidewalk where did the accidents happen that our policy actually covers work that's being ha- uh, taken place on the road outside of the actual whether it's um, you know a, a commercial building a residential building a school or so forth and we're making that argument because if the accident did not occur within the four corners of the project within the actual physical location of the project even if it's adjacent we are arguing that the operational policy for the employer should be covering that loss and not cover wrap-up policy we've been successful with that argument at the trial level also at the uh, board panel appeals level we are keeping an eye to see what the trend is because I feel like it varies from judge to judge and um, whether there's going to be more appeals on that issue for us to have solid case law on on, um, the parameters to be covered by a wrap-up policy. Uh, The the reason is the claimants can still argue that the accident occurred or arose out of the course of employment even if it's not physically on the job site. So that's something we're keeping tabs on uh, but we've been making the arguments that if the accident did not happen with the corners of the project not covered, and we have been successful with that argument. Uh, the scope of work covered by the policy, we should also know um, the type of work, demo, no demo, no hazardous waste, no elevator work, um, it's only going to be concrete work. Um, whatever is covered by the wrap policy, that information should be provided along with any of these other documents to your attorney. The date, location, and exact activity being carried out at the time of the accident. So, as I'm sure you all know, we get a lot of unwitnessed accident. Of course, no one, no one saw me fall, no one saw me trip over this. But it's important that we actually know the kind of work that's being carried out at the time of the accident. Because if the claimant is claiming that he was doing concrete work at the time of the accident and there was zero concrete work being done during that time, that raises a red flag and that's something we should look into more. So we need this information at the very beginning, um, even if it's an accepted claim, if we are not contesting an accident occurred, I think it's good, it's always a good idea to send this information over to your attorney. We're always requesting it so we have it in our file, so if any issues were to arise, we have it readily acceptable to present to the judge at a hearing. All right, so the coverage issues that we generally see with the, with the wrap-ups is, when the board does its initial investigation, and I'm, and I'm very skeptic to call it an investigation because it's, it's so poorly done, unfortunately, you can do an employer coverage search on the board's website. It's something I can do, you can do it, the judges can do it, but the board has their examiners, their investigators, actually doing that. And They would type in the employer's name and the first policy that comes up that covers the date of loss That's the one that they are going to put a note I'd say 99% of the times That first policy that comes up is a wrap-up policy because the project is you know last several years So there's always like an active policy that covers the date of loss and that's the one they place on notes we get pulled into uh, litigation it's dragged on because that's just what the board does no matter how much we fight and ask for discharge removal unless the proper carrier is found they would keep the wrap-up um, on notice and hearing after hearing however we've been able to make some progress in getting uh, discharge and removal from notice early on and it's because we've been able to produce these documents I'm about to talk about from the very very beginning The actual policy. So, this can be anything from I've seen them as as thin as like 20 pages to 70, 80, 90 pages. Um, It has a lot of information in it. It has all of the information we need to show coverage um, for the most part, but then sometimes it's always, sometimes it refers to like the binder documents or some external documents. If there's reference to any external documents, we'd recommend that it be provided to your attorney also. It doesn't have to be turned over to the board, but we need to ensure that we have all the information we need um, pertaining to the uh, the particulars of coverage. The certificate of coverage, this is the one-page sheet that usually has all the basic information about um, the insurance carrier, the type of coverage, whether it's workers' comp, uh, general liability, and importantly, it has the, the location that's being covered. It's nice to have a one-page document to submit to the board. Have the judge review it. Judge, we don't cover this um, particular uh, work that was done here. This um, this employer or subcontractor was um, responsible for their own coverage. We have this certificate of coverage right here, and this is the proper insurance carrier that should be placed and notice. The policy manual again this is very important i should be reviewing it your attorney should be reviewing the policy manual um, generally the policy manual is not changed through the life of the the, the lifespan of the wrap-up so you get it in the beginning and it's a good reference material um, if there are any changes there should be a new one that's published the enrollment document Now, the enrollment document, from those that we've seen, it's generally an Excel sheet, and it's a live document that's constantly being changed. Um, We we usually provide this to the board to show the list of contractors and the date of loss, but in addition to the enrollment document, we need to get someone to testify to it. Why? The issue that we run into often is that they're like, well, this is an Excel document. Who created it? Who changed it? Uh, Tashia, can you can you confirm to me that you never change this? I mean these are the things that we deal with in court, right? They don't believe that the document that we submit and I mean there are rules of evidence that are going to govern this also, but they're questioning the uh, legitimacy of this document uh, because it's um, not a PDF. It's just a, a live Excel sheet that's being changed. So the person who is in charge of the enrollment document, who is always updating it, removing contractors, adding contractors, um, that person should be lined up to testify and defend the that they are needed. My recommendation has always been to create a new document every month at least. So at least we know for the month of January 2022, these are the enrolled contractors and then create a new document for February and March. That's easier to get by the judge than a live uh, Excel document that's constantly being changed. Just something to keep in mind. But this is important because we've had situations where we go into court and, okay, well, this contractor worked on the project, the judge. They were not enrolled, so I don't have coverage on my wrap-up policy. Well, what do you mean it's called a wrap-up policy? It covers everyone on the job site. No, judge, that's not how it works. And then I have to explain the process. And this is when we have to produce the enrollment document to explain Um, or to demonstrate which contractors were actually uh, authorized and approved to be in the project on that particular date, the date of loss. All right, so complications that can arise in a wrap-up program. Uh, For the most part, it's smooth sailing as long as all of the I's are dotted and the T's are crossed and everyone knows who. Um, is responsible for what aspect of the wrap-up, program, the, the wrap-up program. However, there are some issues that could arise in the program. Um, so, so let's talk about the parties to a wrap-up policy. We generally have the broker. The broker is brought in by the owner or the contractor, um, the general contractor, to pretty much facilitate the entire wrap-up program. Uh, some brokerage companies offers a risk management service also, so they would, in addition to procuring the proper uh, insurance policy or coverage for the, the, the program, they're also going to ensure the files are being handled properly and offer input as to how they can be more um, efficiently handled. There's then the insurance carrier and third-party administrator. It's generally both of them. Um, there's only View where the insurance carrier uh, administers the program itself it, itself, and they don't need an additional third-party administrator, but generally it's the insurance carrier and the third-party administrator. Then we have the policy holder. That's the one that actually holds the policy, right? So it's the, um, the owner or the general contractor and the insured would be the clients. Or the, um, the contract the contractor that is being covered by the policy. And we have the general contractor, this is usually the one that's in charge of the program, and they're hiring subcontractors beneath them to get the different kinds of work done. And then we have the enrolled contractor, which, as I'm sure you are tired of hearing me talk about by now, but it because they're on the project, it doesn't mean they're actually enrolled in the program. All right. Unfamiliarity with a wrap Now this is where, whoops, this is where the little bit of an issue arises, right? Um, wrap-up programs that start off on the right feet, on the right foot, now I can't talk, uh, are the ones that work the best. The ones that I see work the best are the ones where in the very beginning there's a big kickoff meeting, all of the parties come into the same room, they introduce themselves, There is a good delineation of who does what, right? Who's in charge of safety? Who's going to be in a medic? Who's the insurance carrier? Who's the TPA? Who's your panel of workers' compensation attorneys? Who's your panel of general liability attorneys? Who is your investigation company? Everyone is given this material. You get to mix and mingle. You talk to everyone. Those are the rapid programs I've seen work the best. When there's a lack of familiarity amongst the parties, um, there's no communication between workers' compensation and general liability. We don't know who the, the, um, the preferred IME vendor is or the preferred investigation vendor is. It slows down the efficiency of claims handling. And this would be my biggest recommendation to anyone who is part of a wrap program. No matter how far along you are in it, it's never too late to get things together, to get everyone on the same page. I think all it takes is for one person to say something, for one person to say, hey, we have this wrap-up program, we have all these parties, none of us have ever gotten onto a call to talk to each other. Do we even know who to go to for a vendor, um, for, the, for the IME or for the investigation, who is the medic? It takes just one person to say, hey, let's get this together, let's get everyone in a call. And I've seen that happen, and I've seen the efficiency of the claims handling uh, pretty much turn around almost instantaneously. Uh, goes into the theme of my construction webinars which is collaboration between workers comp and general liability, but I think the collaboration should be amongst all parties of the wrap-up. Now the unfamiliarity with the wrap-ups and the the workers compensation side and the reports, that's where we find a lot of the issues and this is why we need to understand it ourselves, we need the documents, we need to know what's covered. And what's not covered, because if we're not equipped with the knowledge and how our program works, we're not able to set forth defenses in court. And when the judge says, "Well, hey, I think your wrap-up covers it," if we don't have anything to contest it, you might be very well stuck with a claim that does not belong to you. Um, unfortunately, the other thing that happens with um, the unf- based on the unfamiliarity with how the wrap-ups work. Uh, like I mentioned a little while ago, is that the board places the wrong carriers and notice almost all the time, and then we get stuff going from hearing to hearing to hearing. Having all of those documentary uh, evidence that I talked about, I think it's key to getting us to a sooner uh, discharge and removal from notice. Um, we're trying to avoid the dragged-out hearings to find out the, the proper carrier because it's costing. Or clients' money, they're paying for litigation costs, and they're just being bogged up in unnecessary litigation. So I think ultimately uh, effective claims handling, it really starts from um, us, a part of the wrap-up program. We should understand how it works, we should understand who's who. And you know what? If you are a, a broker or insurance carrier a TPA uh, watching this right now. I feel like the next time um, a construction uh, project comes up, uh, if that being considered, I would recommend, at least from what I know and how I know it runs and saves the client money, I recommend consider, uh, considering a wrap-up program uh, because ultimately it um, reduces the exposure and it really helps you move your cases along, whether to judgment or settlement. Um, and the benefits definitely outweighs any cons of the rabbit program. All right, so I think that's all I've got. Um, If you have any questions, you can type them in here if you haven't already. I don't see any questions. All right, if you think of anything, definitely give me a call, send me an email, and I'll get back to you. my apologies for the tech difficulties in the very beginning. I think you all stayed with me, so thank you so much. I appreciate that. Um, the warm weather is coming, so go out there and enjoy it. I will see you here again next month, always the first Monday of the month, and we're gonna talk about preparing for the loss. And what I mean, what I mean by that is, with this wrap-up program that we, we have in place, what do we need to do ahead of time to get ready for the loss? Believe it or not, the work starts before an accident actually occurs. So we'll talk about that next month, and if you have any questions in advance that you think you'd want me to address, feel free to reach out to me, and I will incorporate it into the webinar. All right, happy Monday, enjoy your week, enjoy the nice weather, I'll see you all next month. Thank you.